Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would be good soil who receive this word with faith and change our thinking and our living to conform to its truth, the truth about the Lord Jesus. And our gracious Father, we pray that you would help me speak uh, your word in my weakness uh, truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the 4th century bishops who wrote the Nicene Creed maintained that at the heart of what Christians believe, at the heart of what Christians proclaim, was this shocking fact, that the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, through whom all things were made, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is what Christians had proclaimed from the beginning, for I wrote, Paul, the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And the bishops kept the crucifixion of Jesus at the heart of the creed. And they did that, first of all, because it was true. It was something that had happened and could be dated to Pilate's tenure as the Roman prefect in Judea during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius. Now, I probably don't need to convince you, uh, sitting here, that the crucifixion of Jesus was a real event in history. But there's actually a surprising amount of scepticism and ignorance about the historical reality of Jesus in our community. Uh, the Australian Community survey, a survey carried out by the National Church Life Survey in 2021 asked respondents, what they, asked respondents whether they thought Jesus was a real person. Only 49% of respondents agreed. 29% said they didn't know and 22% said they thought Jesus was a mythical or fictional character. So that's 51% of people either uncertain about or denying that Jesus was a real person in history, despite the fact that the evidence that Jesus existed and especially that he was crucified is overwhelming. And I'm going to run through that now very briefly in case you meet this scepticism. So there are the letters of Paul written from within 20 to 30 years after Christ's death, uh, they bear witness that he preached Jesus crucified, despite the difficulties that created with his audience, both Greek and Jews. We preach Christ crucified, he wrote, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, those letters are well within the lifetime of many witnesses of those events, when it would have been easy to deny a story of a fictional Jesus. Then there are the four Gospels, separate, not uniform accounts of Jesus' life and death from around 30 to 50 years after Jesus' death, a record of what had already been taught by Christian preachers for decades. The Gospels make clear that Jesus' life and death were witnessed by many eyewitness accounts, not made-up stories. Then there's the unbroken witness of Christian communities for whom the message of the cross is at the heart of the Lord's Supper, the meal they repeated from the beginning. And as, well as, and as well as this, there's testimony to the existence of Jesus, including testimony to the cross in non-Christian sources. 
So, for example, Tacitus, uh, talking about the execution of Christians by Nero after the great fire of Rome, wrote, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Not just written sources, but also archaeological sources. Uh, this is the famous graffiti of Alexemenos mocking somebody for worshipping a crucified God. The evidence for Jesus' crucifixion is so great and sure that the Jewish New Testament scholar Jesus Vermes, who is quite sceptical of many details in the Gospels, is quoted by Tom Holland, another historian, as saying, the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross is an established fact. Now, you can hear that in the rest of history podcast number 175, and it's an entertaining yeah, generally speaking, that podcast series is entertaining. Uh, now, this is a podcast in which Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, two historians who would not call themselves Christians, look at the Roman practice of crucifixion. After detailing the reality of crucifixion, the role it played in asserting Roman power and order and the way it was perceived in first century Greek and Roman society, they say of the gospel testimony to Jesus' crucifixion that it is not the kind of thing anyone would have any interest in making up. You see, for ancient Romans and Greeks, crucifixion was the punishment of rebels and slaves, seen as the very worst form of punishment that could be inflicted. It was designed to be not just slow and painful, but humiliating where the victim stripped naked and having already been weakened by scourging and paraded through the town was made a public spectacle, dying the most wretched of deaths. For the Romans, this, and this is Cicero's most cruel and disgusting penalty, was designed to demonstrate Rome's authority and power in its capacity to utterly humiliate those who opposed it. Jesus being crucified showed that Though he was called king of the Jews, he was no more than a slave, a being without any status or honour. In fact, the word cross itself was said to be harsh to Roman ears. Talk of crucifixion, a visceral turn-off. To preach a crucified Jesus would lead many on first hearing to think of Jesus as an awful, debased criminal a complete and shameful failure, not a saviour. When we see how offensive crucifixion was to the people of the ancient Mediterranean world, we see that it is actually was deeply shocking to preach a crucified Lord. That for ancient hearers, Jesus dying on the cross did not commend Jesus, but was completely inconsistent with the claims Christians made for Jesus. There was no advantage at all in making it up. In fact, keeping on talking about Jesus' crucifixion was positively disadvantageous. So why did the first believers and then the writers of the creed keep crucifixion at the centre of their confession and their proclamation? Oh, yes, yeah, sure, it happened. But why not try and cover it up or at least to make it less prominent, not place it immediately following the confession of the Lord Jesus as the Son of God become man in the creed, a claim which for many the very fact of crucifixion denied. 
Now, the answer to that question of why keep it, why make it prominent, is actually contained in the creed itself, in three other statements in this section of the creed. They kept it central, firstly, because Jesus' crucifixion was purposeful. For us, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Secondly, because the story of Jesus didn't end at the crucifixion. Yes, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. And thirdly, because the crucifixion along with the resurrection was all part of God's big plan. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. So let's look at each of these reasons. Firstly, this death was purposeful. The writers of the creed speak of Jesus' death being for our sakes or for us. And there are many scripture references to Christ's death being for us. These scriptures tell us Christ's death as a criminal condemned by judicial authority was intended, purposed by God to achieve great good for us. Just a few examples. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. He, that's God, made the one, that's Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, says Paul, has sent Jesus to take our place, to take our place under judgment, made him to be sin for us, to be there on the cross as the sinners we are, even though he had done no sin himself, to endure in our place what our sins deserved, so that believing in him, we can be reckoned righteous, that is, have the verdict on our lives that Jesus deserves and so be people in whom God's law can find nothing to condemn and so people who can live with God forever. On this verse is a reminder that when we say for us, it's not for us in the sense that Christ is someone we have chosen to represent us, our delegate undertaking a mission authorised by us on our behalf, He's not for us in that sense. Jesus is for us in the sense of our substitute. Like when we get injured on the footy field and the coach sends in someone to take our position, to do in our place what we can't do anymore. The substitution of Christ on the cross for us as those under the law of God's condemnation is even clearer in our next verse, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Christ redeems us, that is, sets us free from God's law's just condemnation by enduring it himself on the cross. He pays our debt to God's law. We were under the law's curse for our sin, our disobedience, that is, we were condemned to exclusion from God's people, under sentence of death and having no place in the promised inheritance, the new heaven and earth. But on the cross, Christ literally took that curse on himself in our place so that we who trust him can be included in God's people forever, be reckoned those who no longer are under the law's condemnation, be reckoned fit 
to be in God's presence now in receiving the Spirit now and be forever heirs of the promise of the new heaven and earth. One final example that speaks of Christ's death for us, one familiar to many of us, the Lord himself speaking. Paul writes to the Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, for you. Christians didn't make up the fact that Christ's crucifixion was for us, for our sake. Jesus taught us that before he died taught that he would give his body on the cross to be the one sacrifice that would take away the offence of our sin forever. And in Luke, we see that our Lord also taught that his blood was poured out for us. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you, teaching us that his dying for us on the cross in our place would bring into effect the new covenant where our sins would be forgiven forever. In confessing for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, we are confessing that Jesus' shameful death on that horrid cross was in our place, taking upon himself what our sins deserved, bringing us the good only the sinless Son of God could bring us, for only he become true man, could die in our place, to bring us the incomparable good of forgiveness forever, of freedom from the power and penalty of sin, of being cleansed so we are fit to receive God's Holy Spirit, the good of peace with God because in Christ we are reckoned righteous, the good of being included in God's people who will live in his presence forever. But who can say with assurance that it was for our sake Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate? In the creed, it's clearly believers, isn't it? Those who are confessing that they believe in one God, Father, Son and Spirit. And that's what the gospel says. Uh, Peter in Acts 10, speaking to Cornelius, says, All the prophets testify about Jesus that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Or John, as you heard, says he writes so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life, eternal life, in his name. Those who believe the gospel can say Jesus' death was for our sake. But scripture has various ways of speaking of those for whom Christ died, each reminding us of something important. Let me just give you three. Firstly, John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Those who can say for our sake are Jesus' sheep, that is, those who listen to his voice, who hear his call and follow him. And there's no assurance of being included in Jesus' death outside of that listening and following all our lives. Or Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, God proves, verse 8, his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Here those for whom Christ died are called the ungodly sinners. And that's a reminder that when we say for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, it's not because we were good or deserving. To confess that he was crucified for our sake is to confess that we're sinners. And these words can only be on our lips by God's grace. It's to confess that we were once alienated from God by our choices, willingly enslaved to sin, deservedly facing God's wrath. And Christ's death is the source of all the good we know as believers, the source of that reconciliation, freedom, peace and forgiveness, not our works but Christ for us. And again, Paul in 1 Timothy For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Here Christ is said to have given himself for all, whatever their race, their education, their gender, their culture or language. And I'm drawing your attention to this because terms like all and sinner are deliberately inclusive. They're invitations to all without exception to find ourselves included by faith in Jesus amongst those who can say, for our sake, he was crucified. And that's important because if you can know yourself a sinner, well, you know you can be included in the benefits of Christ's death if you will trust him, if you can recognise that you have not loved God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and not loved your neighbour as yourself, you can know you can be included. Oh, if you know that that other person is a sinner, you know, that husband or wife, that child, that friend or even that enemy for whom you're praying, you can know that they can be included in the us if they will turn back to God and believe. Believers confess For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And we can say that with confidence because the story of Jesus doesn't end there with the crucifixion. On the third day, he rose again. Now, the podcast I referred you to, uh, in case you look it up, and they're a good series, is actually very weak on the resurrection, which is not surprising uh, because they're not believers. But the resurrection of Jesus is unique. In the body in which he died and was buried, he rose and appeared to his followers. Where death's power is most seen and felt in the cold corpse of the person who once was living, there the defeat of death is demonstrated as Jesus' followers touch him, speak with him, eat with him. And this resurrection is something only God can do. Resurrection life is not in the power of humanity, not in the power of lifeless matter. God raised Jesus from the dead. And this resurrection is a God-only vindication of all Jesus taught and did. And the resurrection's an event. It's not just a thought, a nice concept, a comforting projection. You heard the witnesses to Christ's resurrection in the reading from 1 Corinthians 15. You know, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the 12 to 500, brothers and sisters at one time, James, all the apostles, and last of all to Paul. 
Hear that? Resurrection appearances. Different people at different times in different places and contexts. And a lot of them, most of whom, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, were still alive at the time of writing. That is, people who could be consulted about the truthfulness of what Paul is writing. And when you read the Gospel accounts, you see that those to whom Jesus appeared weren't expecting the resurrection. Jesus had to convince them he was alive, like Thomas. Convince them by talking with them, saying their names, offering himself to be touched by them, showing them his wounds, eating with them. In speaking of the resurrection, these first believers witnessed to what they had seen and touched and heard. Now, over time, all sorts of alternate explanations for their testimony have arisen, offered by those who don't want to accept that they're telling the truth. And I'm going to mention these alternate explanations now, not to deal with them in detail, but to invite you to come and talk if you think they might be true. Some suggest, for example, that the disciples were deliberately lying when they talked about Jesus' resurrection. This was what the religious authorities tried to claim when they put out the rumour that the apostles had stolen the body. But it actually strains credibility to think that the apostles are intentionally lying. The gospel accounts, especially of the resurrection, are sufficiently different in detail to make it clear that they didn't get together to make up a uniform story. And what would be the benefit for them in making up the story of the resurrection? What we see is they get a life on the move, accumulating no wealth, like Paul, beaten, whipped, stoned, imprisoned, and yes, in the end, killed for their testimony to the resurrection. As Paul said, if there's no resurrection, we should be pitied more than anyone. And if the body was stolen, why not search for it and produce it? And finally, you might die for a lie you believe is true. Like those who piloted the planes into the Twin Towers believed the lie that they go to paradise. But you don't die for a lie you know is a lie. And the apostles maintained their witness to Jesus rising from the dead even when they were killed for it, died, rather than say it was a lie. Now, there's a more sophisticated version of the lying scenario which does the rounds of some churches. Uh, this is that the apostles were nobly lying. That is, the disciples had a spiritual conviction of the greatness of Jesus, of his life somehow going on, and they crafted the gospel stories to convey what they'd experienced of Jesus so that we and others could share their experience of Jesus as we learnt what he meant to them. Oh, but we're told when they talked about his bodily resurrection, they weren't lying because we were never meant to take what they wrote literally. But actually, they were lying if Jesus was not risen bodily. And this suggestion, you know, that the resurrection stories are conveying their appreciation of the spiritual importance of Jesus actually makes nonsense of the gospel stories. Of Luke's insistence, for example, that he's conveying eyewitness testimony, nonsense of the empty tomb, of the details of the resurrection, for example, the conviction of sceptical Thomas. 
by the appearing of Jesus to be touched in his hands and sides. That's a bodily resurrection. It makes nonsense of the testimony of Paul and of the pre-existing Jewish understanding that the resurrection was always bodily. So this theory is actually the lie of those who want to deny a bodily resurrection yet stay in positions of influence in the Christian church. You may have met some, often they wear purple. It's straining credibility to think that they are intentionally lying. So maybe the apostles and the others were deceived. And there are various versions of this. You know, they went to the wrong tomb. Well... You know, I have lost a car in a car park once, uh, but it. But I actually got to the right one eventually, and this was somewhat more significant than getting home from the airport, right? But it actually wasn't the empty tomb that convinced them Jesus was alive. It was the risen Jesus himself. And if they'd gone to the wrong tomb, why don't the authorities just produce the body? Oh, here's another. They were deceived about him being really dead. He had just swooned fainted from blood loss and then revived in the tomb. And yes, then rolled the stone away and convinced his followers that he was the glorious risen Lord and then just vanished into some kind of anemic post-crucifixion history. Now, this is just unreal about the process and purpose of crucifixion and completely inconsistent with the eyewitness accounts. Then there's the hallucination theory, either grief or drug-induced magic mushrooms on the hills in Palestine, but multiple appearances to different people in different contexts is entirely the opposite of what you would expect of hallucinations. And it is actually doubtful that there are such things as mass hallucinations. All these alternatives are far less believable than that the almighty God raised Jesus from the dead. And the apostles are witnessing to what they had seen and heard and touched as Jesus appeared to them to convince them that he was alive. But if thinking that these are possible is keeping you from taking the gospel seriously, well, come and talk. The apostles kept preaching and we keep confessing the crucifixion because Jesus' death on the cross was purposeful, the source of great good for us. And because God vindicated Jesus, showed the truth of all he taught in raising him from the dead. But that's not all. We confess that Jesus' death and rising are part of God's big plan in accordance with the scriptures. And here the creed echoes St Paul, doesn't it? For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And in saying that, Paul himself is just summarising what Jesus taught, that he had come to fulfil the scriptures. And there are some references in the outline Jesus' death and rising weren't an accident and they weren't an abandonment of God's past dealings with Israel. The fulfilment of the scriptures in Jesus' death and resurrection tells us Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection had been purposed by God from long before, a purpose and plan he'd revealed over centuries to his people in the scriptures and that the salvation he brings is the salvation promised by God to his Old Testament people. 
And in those scriptures, our Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 on, we see that God had a plan to undo the effects of the sin of Adam and renew the whole creation through having a people of his own. That plan was revealed in the promises to Abraham that in him all the nations will be blessed, promises repeated and developed through Israel's history, through the covenant at Sinai, through the anointing of David as king and the promises made to him that one of his offspring would be and have an eternal reign, through the promises in the prophets of a new heaven and earth, of a servant who would be a light to the nations, a servant who would save God's people through his sacrifice of himself, through the promise of a new covenant where God's people's sins would be forgiven. There are many, many promises. And one of the most exciting things you can do, yes, exciting, is read your Old Testament and see those promises given hundreds of years before Jesus was born and see how they become richer and more detailed and then see how they are fulfilled in Jesus, both in the details of the crucifixion and resurrection and in the big picture of his coming and how believers in Jesus become heirs of those promises as the people the Lord Jesus has redeemed for his Father, the people who will dwell in the new heaven and earth where there is no more grief or pain or death anymore. You see, it's both awesome and encouraging to look at the horrid event of the crucifixion in all its ugliness of cruelty, callousness and hatred and say with the apostles that those involved in killing the Lord Jesus did whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Awesome, because we see God doing exactly what he intended and revealed hundreds of years before through the sinful free choices people make, that their rebellion only serves him. Awesome, because we see that what God did was so good when what people were doing was so wicked. Oh, and encouraging to see that God never fails to do what he says. His word never fails, even if everything seems lost. When you see Jesus' death as for us, as not the end of the story, as part of God's big plan for the whole creation, <coughs> well, you can see, can't you, why those fourth century bishops kept the shocking fact of Jesus' crucifixion at the heart of what we confess. And crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised on the third day, remains our confession. For it's true, and it is a wonderful confession. It says of our God, Father, Son and Spirit that he is the living God, not an idol, not a creation of the human imagination, the living God who reveals his purposes and plans and then brings them to pass in the world, in real life, the God who can do what no creature can do, save by the eternal Son becoming man to do for us on the cross what we could not do for ourselves, save by raising him from the dead. The living God who in Paul's words, whose foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, whose weakness stronger than human strength, the living God who is good, doing all this for us sinners, those who've trashed his world and his reputation, doing it because he loves with a great love and is rich in mercy. The living God who deserves our praise and trust.
And this confession says of us who believe in the Lord Jesus by believing the gospel that he's died for our sins and risen again, that we are loved. It's extraordinary. We ordinary people, sinful people, who can now say with Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that extraordinary? I think to remember every day. Oh, and it says of us that we're included by God's grace through faith in the people of God, the people who will inherit the new heaven and earth, who will rise with Christ on that day, and every tear will be wiped from our eyes by God our Father himself. Oh, and yes, and it says now we have a living Saviour, Lord of heaven and earth, always able to help who will return and to whom all will give account. But more of that next week. To understand this confession, which has been found on the lips of so many ordinary sinners like us over years, actually makes your head spin when you start to think about it, that we could have such a God as our God, such a Saviour as our Saviour, and no such love. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. doesn't just remain at the centre of our confession. It remains at the centre of our proclamation. The creed reminds us that sharing the gospel is not sharing ideas to be debated. And it's not passing on the advice of a life coach which people can take or leave depending on their circumstances. It's actually news, news of events, the proclamation of what God has done in Christ. And it's good news for it says the good God, the living and true God in giving us a saviour, the Lord Jesus, who was crucified for us for our sin and raised to life never to die again is offering forgiveness for the wrong we've done, life for our death, truth for our lies, light for our darkness, a way home in our lostness. And that is good news, news that saves, that is itself the power of God to bring that life and light to all who believe. But as news, it must be responded to. Uh, We've been doing a bit of, you know, reminiscing with Bundy Unplugged 20 years. Here's another reminiscence. When the bloke in the car came into the car park of the church camp on Saturday, February the 7th, 2009 at Marysville and brought news of the approaching fire, as he did doing wheelies in the car park, Adam and Andrew and the others had a choice. They could believe the news, pack up and go and save their lives. Or they could ignore it, stay put and perish when the fire ripped through that campsite as it did. Now, how they felt about hearing that news, whether they were disappointed to be leaving early, whether they felt rushed or unsettled, it didn't change the choice they had to make and it didn't change the urgency. When you hear the news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he's now Lord, judge of the living and the dead. You have a choice. 
To respond as this news requires with repentance, that's changing your mind about who's in charge of your life and saying it's the Lord Jesus, not you. And faith, believing that Christ has died for your sins and now lives and reigns and live. You can respond as the news requires, repent and believe and live, or you can stay put in your rebellion to God. You can ignore or reject the news. And yes, face condemnation in God's just judgment for the sin you've done. And how you feel about being faced with this choice. You know, whether you think it's an imposition, a bother, poorly timed, even rude to raise it, it actually doesn't change the choice. And it's the choice every one of us face as we hear the gospel. Now, if you're sitting here or listening and you think you don't know enough to make this choice, you're unsure about the resurrection or even the idea of sin, well, investigate Jesus and come and talk. We'd love to help you. But actually, maybe that's not you. Maybe you know Jesus has died, know Jesus has risen. Well, better choose to live. Confess the truth of the gospel in your heart And ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you and give you his spirit, which he will to all who call on him in truth. And then come and talk to someone. But if you agree, the news of Jesus' death and resurrection is great good news. Well, that must be responded to. Then you also know it's news that needs to be heard. That Australian community survey by the NCLS I spoke of at the beginning that revealed many were sceptical or ignorant of Jesus' existence had both encouragement and challenge for believers. It reported, for example, that three out of ten people were likely to go to a carol service if invited by friends and family. That is, there's openness to hearing about Jesus. But it also reported that only 44% of those in the survey had a close friend or family member who attends a church regularly. And that means that 56% of people don't. And that means if those 56% are to hear, it has to be from others, workmates, fellow members of the sports team or club, someone who is in a class with them, a neighbour, The invitation has to come to them. Well, from people like you and I. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Offensive and awful as that crucifixion was, that's the gospel and it is good news. For this death was for us. Jesus lives and he has fulfilled God's great plan and purpose to save. Do you believe that good news? Are you growing in understanding and conviction of its truth in a sceptical world? Is it a joy to confess that that is what you believe? And yes, are you sharing this good news so that others will be able to say too, for my sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the truth of the gospel so clearly presented to us in the creed that Christ has died for our sins, that he's buried and that he has risen 
to fulfill your word, your promises and plan. We thank you for opening our eyes to know that Christ's death was for us, to bring us peace with you, to let us know you and your love. And gracious Father, we pray that we would be transformed by that love so that we would want others to know the truth and to find life and hope in the crucified Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.